Baseball and umpire fans, and welcome to the Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining me on this episode is 2015 Pan American Games umpire, winner of the Dick Willis Award, and a person who prefers spaghetti over lasagna, Rhonda Pauls. Topics we look to cover are karaoke in Japan, the Grand Forks International Tournament, and getting flipped at home plate. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming. Hello, baseball and umpire fans, and welcome back to another episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Well, hard to believe, but we're into episode 11. Every week just keeps getting better and better and better. Well, that's my opinion anyways. I hope you're feeling the same way. And if you're here listening, you probably do. So thanks for tuning in. Now, one of the things that we like to do at the start of every episode is really push our social media It's simple. We have a Facebook page. I know. So 2008. But go on, check it out. Look up Leading Edge Umpire Stories on Facebook. Sometimes we do some show edits and we do some fun and, you know, post some stuff. Just a way to get our brand out there and really just keep people engaged who are listening. So check it out. Leading Edge Umpire Stories on Facebook. Fantastic. I'm happy this Facebook plug's done. Let's get on to the better part of the show. Okay. Now, Before we get on to this week's episode, where we bring on the BCBUA president and a lady who is experienced internationally, I want to just highlight last week's episode with Corey Davis. So in case you missed it, here's a quick excerpt of what you're missing. First thing that happened when we walked in the room was Joe West came over to us at the door, parking lot with Rich, and and Joe rolls up in his little red sports car. I didn't think I was having that bad of a game, but they were on me. I said, "I, I don't know who said that, but somebody has to go Obviously, you never forget your first and went to their hotel and hoped that that was my hotel. Maybe one of the best umpires Canada's ever produced. A great guy by the name of Jim Cressman. But I'll tell you what, when I watched that guy work, I knew that I wanted to be like that guy. What was it? The, you were the DC Defenders, right? That was your team? We all have those experiences in our life that we'll never forget. Two things, Corey. Yes, you are right. I am a DC Defenders fan for life and... I'm really excited to hear that The Rock has bought the XFL and hopefully brings it back and resurrects it. But the second thing is, the experience of interviewing you on The Leading Edge is something I will never forget for the rest of my life. So thanks for coming on, Corey, and sharing with us your story. I'm going to talk quickly about that last episode. Sometimes maybe we're bad luck here in The Leading Edge. Corey mentioned Joe West a couple times, and I spilled the beans on my love for Jim Wolf. And both of them had a very rough week in Major League Baseball. Joe, of course, getting a bat to the side of the head, and then Jim getting run over like a freight train and suffering from a concussion. We want to wish those guys the best of luck in recovery and are always thinking about our umpire family. Now, if you want to catch some of that stuff from that episode, you can find the episode on Spotify, Podbean, Apple iTunes Podcast, Google Podcast, TuneIn, really anywhere you find your podcast. Just go there, search for Leading Edge Umpire Stories, and hopefully you find it. If we're not up there, Let us know and we'll look to get it up there, okay? But I assume because you're listening to this episode that you know where to find it. Okay, enough about yakking about the past. Let's get going with the present and share with you the future. So without further ado, Leading Edge Sports Entertainment is proud to introduce President of the British Columbia Baseball Umpire Association, 
a 2015 Pan American Games umpire, recipient of the Dick Willis Award, and is an avid coin collector, Rhonda Pauls. Rhonda, welcome to The Leading Edge. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you on as a guest here on episode 11. This is a big episode. Trevor Drury is worried, considering that this could knock him out of the top 10. So, Ooh, mm, I'll do my best. Tough act to follow, but... Tough act to follow. He's been worried. I keep reminding him, episode 11, he'll still be in the top 11 episodes, I promise, after this. So he's still good. So one of the first things we like to do, Rhonda, is we like to allow our guests the opportunity to let us know Fill us in on what their baseball history is, and we always want to start with playing. So, Rhonda, you fill us in with your playing career. I played Little League Baseball out of Langley, British Columbia as a kid. And uh, back in those olden days, because I'm quite old, uh, they didn't really encourage girls to play baseball after about the age of, you know, 10, 11, 12, even. You got steered into softball. Uh, my dad was an avid baseball player. I come from an avid baseball family, and softball was not really of interest to me. So um, I didn't play after that until I hit high school. And then my high school had like a weekend inter-squad rec league where we played baseball against other high schools. So I got to play some baseball in uh, high school. And then as a young adult, I played on some mixed teams that did some outreach into prisons, of all things. I played baseball against inmates as a community service type thing. Uh, but it was more of a slow pitch which isn't really the big ball and that whole thing didn't really tickle my fancy. So I never really hooked up with baseball again until my boys started playing. And then, and my daughter played as well. I started coaching, got all my coaching certifications and stuck with that for a while. One day, my son's mosquito team, which in those days was the what 10 and 11 year olds, showed up at the field Then I'm the assistant coach and no umpires show up. Someone says, well, the kids are all gonna cry. We gotta play baseball. Somebody just go out there and how hard can this be? So. I'm like, I, I can probably do this. And that was the beginning of this. And that was about uh, 21 years ago, I think. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned two things. You played in the prison system. When I watched the movie Major <laughs> not League... Not as an inmate. I just want to clarify. Not as an inmate. <laughs> not as an inmate. Well, you're, you've been serving your sentence as an umpire for a long time. That's right. So That's right. all of us baseball fans probably have seen the movie Major League. And they always ask where Charlie Sheen comes from. He says the California Penal League. So I didn't really realize that existed in BC, but good to know. We still use that term, California Penal League, and uh, Ron Chuchuk will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that, because when we umpire in Tucson, Arizona, there is a team that that's what we refer to as because we believe that's an appropriate name for them. So You got your start in Langley, BC in Little League. Now, we know that we're both part of the Baseball Canada program, and Little League is a different component of it, but Langley, BC is definitely a Little League hotspot within in Canada, and I think they've been to the Little League World Series multiple times. Yes, they have. Okay, so moving on. Now, you say that you've been umpiring about, what, 20? 20, 20, I think this is uh, this would have been the 21st or 22nd year. I'm, I'm really bad 
with dates and places. <laughs> I usually go by how old my kid was when that happened. And then I isolate the kid and go with his age and subtract. Now over that time, 21 years, you must have had a lot of games. Do you have any memorable provincial championships or experiences within British Columbia? As an umpire, uh, it's always fun. The collegiality is is always fun and meeting people and working with different crews. And I, you know, we all have tons of memories about that. But when you ask me something that's outstanding from a provincial championship, the most outstanding provincial memory I have is of a actual BC Summer Games, which is a provincial event, but I was supervising and and I wasn't umpiring uh, other than to work with some of the crews at, at times because we were teaching them three-man system and a summer games where we decided to do some different things with our umpires and give them uh, some different opportunities. Everybody has it as a bucket list to work a summer games or a Canada games. Everybody loves the prestige of that. We're such a development organization in BC that we're always looking for opportunities to introduce new things and bring in lots of supervisors and spend lots of times with guys when we can have them kind of as a captive audience for the weekend and I particularly remember in Abbotsford I'm going to say maybe 2014 or 16 I'm not sure which uh, year it was that that the summer games was there that we had a, a supervisory crew and some really young officials that we mentored and taught some three-man mechanics to over the course of the weekend and uh, we had a supervisor there that was just getting into supervising uh, had been uh, and I'm just going to throw him under the bus Phil Bourgeois and I've talked about this before because it's a, a great uh, illustration Old-time BC umpires, not all of us, but we were renowned for being kind of me guys, me people, and we are now known as being we people. And we had a long transition period of building our program that way. And that was a, a weekend where we had some aha moments for some of our guys where they had the opportunity to work with young officials and watch them grow and change and develop and over, over the course of a weekend and just become somebody else four days later than they were when they started. And that parental feeling of pride that you get when you see somebody else that you've had a hand in you know, developing succeed and just rock something on the field where you want to jump up and down and cheer for them and that was a, a weekend of uh, both for the umpires and for the supervisors that we were working with in training. That was a real highlight for me because it was a great opportunity for some of our top level guys to know what it was like to celebrate somebody else's success, uh, not just our own. It's always nice to see the evolution within the umpiring world. Now, since we're on the topic, you are currently the president of the British Columbia Baseball Umpires Association. I am. You don't become president in the first day. So you've obviously had many years experience within the organization. Can you share with us some of the roles that you've had within that? I uh, well, I started in Abbotsford, obviously, that's where I raised my kids. And so that's where I started coaching. And then that's where I became an umpire and eventually became the UIC, spent nine years as a UIC for the Abbotsford organization. And then I moved uh, onto the board at the BCBUA as the Area 3 representative, which was kind of the east side of the Fraser Valley. Uh, and from there, I moved into being the VP. And I think I had that role for about nine years. And so I was the um, discipline chair for the province for the entire duration of that. Lots of stories about that. I don't need to get into that. And the other role, as soon as Robbie uh, stepped out and away from the program, he used to be our education chair, Robbie Allen. And so I took over from Rob as the education chair as well. So from VP, uh, I've moved into the presidency and got to relinquish my discipline chair role, but I have kept the education chair. And I also kind of am the spearhead of the mentorship program that we run in British Columbia and, and how we've tried to share that with Baseball Canada and our resources and what we've developed. And I am very to relinquish that responsibility because it's absolutely my passion. So well, it's fantastic to hear. We've said it before. We'll say it again. Mentorship is a big aspect of umpiring. Talked about generational umpiring with on the show. 
where people come up and they do 10, 20 years within a program and they hand it over. So it's really good to see that we have people out there that are one holding on to those positions now, but are actually creating succession plans because a lot of times we see programs just die when people leave. So it's single point of failures are never something we want. So I want to congratulate the BCBUA on the fantastic work they're doing with mentorship and to promote umpiring to the next level. Thank you very much. Now, quickly, Rhonda, can you explain to us what the BC Summer Games are? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's kind of the multi-sport mini Olympics for the province. And there's different age groups for the kids. So some of the kids are younger and some of them are older. It just depends on the sport. So baseball is usually around the bantam age. I think they're 14 and 15 year olds. They play on a full size diamond. So that presents a big challenge for bantam players that have never thrown from 60 foot six inches to all of a sudden having to throw uh, the distance. They really do a lot of screening for the higher level kids and, and trying to get them into that. But our biggest struggle with baseball of courses in our northern and more remote regions that don't have the density of baseball it's a hard matchup when the zones are playing each other when you've got the lower mainland with high level pbl players that are going to be on those teams and then you're pulling softball players out of a a random district and putting them on a team and saying here's baseball rules we're going to go play baseball now but it's always fun Uh, it's always won by volunteers the entire uh, summer games is uh, hosted usually at out of out of a city and the school district works in conjunction with them and the kids i remember my first summer games that i ever worked for brian carnelli as a matter of fact up in Kelowna, and we were uh, sleeping on gym floors in 45 degree heat and on air mattresses and it's quite an experience and something everybody should have to do at some point as an <laughs> as an official not just for the experience of doing it but to be able to say i survived it <laughs> yeah no it's uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for kids to get together and have their very first multi-sport event and get a taste of what it's like to be uh, at the celebration of an event like that and just like umpiring and the camaraderie, the memories that are made at these events are just fantastic. We never really remember the plays on the field, but we can always remember, I went to that event, that person was there, this is the fun we had, and then you reflect back on it years later. Unless you're Ron Shuchuk, and then you remember every play on the field from every game in what the location was and what year it was, just so you know. Well, thanks for the heads up. Yes, Ron does have a fantastic memory on him. I'll have to remember that if he ever comes on the show and Try to find out what his favorite play or situation was over the years. Now, moving on from provincial championship, usually the natural progression is into the Baseball Canada National Program and into national championship territory. Rhonda, share with us how many national championships you've been a part of. Well, according to Corey Davis, six or seven, so we're going to go with that. (laughs) (laughs) Six or seven. Well, just like Ron, Corey has a pretty good memory. But can you share with us some of the fantastic experiences you've had at these championships? I started out uh, in the in the early years. I did Bantam Girls National Tournaments, and then I moved into the Senior Women's Tournaments and uh, the Pee Wees. I think I've worked Bantams, Canada Cup. We've had lots of uh, Western opportunities that we've done where we host BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba type thing where I've worked as an umpire and as a supervisor. Now with a resume like that, do you have any memorable experiences from those championships? I have lots of memorable experiences. Uh, Some of them are from the field. Some of them are not uh, on the field. We're going to go with a memory from the Canada Cup that I got tanked at home plate uh, by a very large East Coast boy who, who was, the coach told me he weighed about 270. He was about six foot four and he was barreling home from third base and the throw came in and I don't know, in, in Fort McMurray, where the cup was that year, it's all turf and those little beads were relatively new, you know, the little rubber balls that they have in yep. there and this this boy started his slide about 
30 feet up the line <laughs> and came in like a freight train on roller on roller bearings. I have never seen anything like it. And of course, that was third base extended because the catcher's coming in with a swipe tag coming back from the screen towards him. So I had a great profile to the swipe and saw the whole contact and when and how it all happened. But what I didn't anticipate was that he would just continue on through the plate and to the other side of the plate and took me out at the feet tossed me up in the air and we we use that expression uh when i was growing up arse over tea kettle yeah if that creates a visual for you but there was a photographer there of course the photographer had a fast rapid shot of the entire thing which i do have to this day uh saved but you see me in progression turning a full somersault up in the air and landing on my butt uh, with my face uh, towards the screen. And the call was safe and I didn't have the wherewithal to stand up and have a presence and make a safe call. There's a picture of me literally sitting flat on my rear end making a safe call facing the back of the screen. That doesn't happen every day. It hasn't happened since and I hope it never happens again. (laughs) Yeah, that's not one that I really want to happen again. I'm glad you got to experience the first time. Yeah, so that's my my uh, best crazy story from a national on field. My best crazy story from a national off field was, I believe, at the Pee Wees in Saskatoon many years ago. I'm going to say 2012, 13, 11, something around there. It was me and uh, a great group of guys. And of course, we actually had a rain day. And we had nothing to do because there was nothing near where we were. And so we all decided to get the bus into the big mall in town and walk around in this mall for the day. I don't know if there was 12 of us, that was me and 11 guys. So we're just walking around this mall together. They're following me because I'm the female and we're in a mall and you should know where to go in a mall and we don't know what to do. So we broke into two groups. So there was about six guys with me. So I'm like, hey, they got a Lulu here. Who knew the Saskatoon had a Lulu? Let's go to Lulu. And the guys are all like, oh, fine, let's go to Lulu. So we walk into Lulu. And so one of the BC umpires that was with me, uh, in addition to uh, Bill McMillan, was um, George Smith. So George Smith, uh, and I don't I don't actually think Billy was there uh, in the group with me that day and and he'll correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, me and George and four or five other guys walk into the Lululemon. And George appears to what looks to me to have a heart attack as we're walking into the store. He starts to twitch and he grabs his chest and he doubles over and makes some some sounds and kind of looks tweaky for a few minutes and then kind of looks for a place to sit down. And I'm like, George, George, what's going on? And he couldn't talk for a few minutes. And then finally he, he gets and he says, uh, you know, I have a pacemaker. Something's wrong. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. Do we call 911? What are we going to do? And the girls are all coming over and trying to figure out what the story is. So we, we let him sit there for a few minutes and we walk around and we shop and we think, OK, George is going to be fine. So we're done our business and we go to leave again. And the same thing happens. And so we all just kind of stop in our tracks. And then we realize that the gate with the sensors in it that you have to walk through has tripped his mechanism that he's got embedded in his heart. And it's causing him to it, it to reset and calibrate. And it's sending shock waves through his body. So now we can't get him out of the store. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out how to get George out of the store without killing him. So, of course, we're we're half laughing, doubled yeah. over because of the ridiculousness of it. But we're still so now the girls in the store are phoning head office because they don't have the ability to shut off this 
this security panel thing. You know, there are, you know, yep. 18 year old girls in the store. It's above their pay grade to turn off the security system. Well, no, nobody can actually access and turn off this gate. So we actually had to put George kind of one on either side. We locked arms with him and we just ran through really quick, hoping that it wouldn't <laughs> minimize the damage. Red Rover, Red Rover, we're going to bring George and over. That's exactly. We linked arms just like that and we raced through the, the check or the, the gate. So we talked about that for a long time. That's pretty classic. I think we've all been to the convenience store that says around the microwave, anybody with a pacemaker, stay away. Next time you go into a Lululemon, look for the, if you have a pacemaker, stay away sign. That's right. Now you mentioned one name in there and I've had the opportunity to meet this gentleman, but Bill McMillan. Oh, he's a beauty. Now you say he wasn't with you that day. My guess is he probably brought his wife along and she probably tagged along somewhere else because Bill's wife, I can't remember her name, apologies, but Patsy, a, Patsy, a big baseball fan. Those yes, she is. Two individuals are big baseball people, and we talk about the camaraderie of umpiring. And just because you say his name, I it it brings back memories of my experience with Bill at the 15 U's in Summerside a few years back, and BC to Summerside PEI. It's a cross Canada trek, people. And Patsy joined along, and she was just as big a part of the uh, the group as Bill was. So. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's your, that brings back some fantastic memories. They're, they're some of my, are two of my favorite people. They're just amazing. They are. And that's the beautiful thing about the Baseball Canada National Empire program is you never know who you're going to meet, where you're going to meet them, or where you're going to run in talking about them again. Now, Rhonda, you've been to national championships as we've discussed. You have eventually progressed to the international stage and got the opportunity to work for the World Baseball and Softball Confederation, as we call it, the WBSC. Would you care to share with us some of the tournaments that you've worked there and how many tournaments you have worked? Uh, sure. Yeah. Back back in when I started, it was the IBAF is, is what they were called before they became the WBSC. My first international experience, I believe, was in 2012 uh, in Cuba. And there was a Canada-Cuba-Venezuela series leading up to the uh, World Cup. It wasn't a qualifier back then, but it was a pre-tournament series. And uh, Andre wanted to take a couple of of national female umpires with him to Cuba because Canada, Team Canada was asked to bring two with them down there. And so myself and Karin Daou from Quebec, who we'd never met each other before and became fast and furious friends uh, while we were there. It was a great experience. Very interesting. Uh, that was 2012. And then in 2014, I went to uh, Japan to the World Cup there. And then, of course, you mentioned the um, the Pan American Games was 2015. And then just last year in 2019, I was in Aguascaliente, Mexico for the uh, Pan Am Championship qualifier for the Americas. You definitely have a lot of world experience, but let's start at the beginning. What was it like to get your first call to get a chance to work internationally in Cuba? Uh, so I'm going to say that one wasn't actually a, a call uh, so much as an opportunity because it wasn't uh, it wasn't I wasn't being sent on behalf of Canada I was just allowed to represent Canada with Team Canada that time yeah. but I still credit it as a oh, no really question awesome learning experience for me to work in a different country in a different culture and to see how I mean until you've worked Latin baseball you just don't get how what the term human rain delay means, it, it was generated in, in Latin America because everything that could possibly take as much time as you could take on a field will be taken. There is no pace of game, you know, 42 degrees. They've elected to start the game at 2 p.m. in the afternoon and it's going to take four hours to get through it and you're just going to slog it out. And you're there dying as a Canadian because you're not climatized and the Cuban officials all have long sleeves on. 
and you're like, <laughs> what? what is going on here? You know, you're dehydrated. You feel like throwing up. There's no bathrooms anywhere there. I don't know if they're embargoed in, in ball fields there, but there's no washrooms. There's no toilet paper. Drinking water is, you know, it, it's just such an experience to have to survive. And sometimes you feel like you're just surviving because you you don't feel good. And I was very ill when I was there. I got a bug. Karen was sick. Couldn't even come to the games a couple of times because she was so sick. I was so sick when I got home from Cuba. I was about three months before I recovered <laughs> properly oh. just because of the diet of what we ate was so different. My system wasn't and I was sick for a long time. But experience of being there on the field uh, with Team Canada, of course, a very I'm a very patriotic, proud Canadian and having the opportunity to go with Team Canada and preparing for the World Cup and meet some other Cuban officials. Uh, interestingly, uh, I met officials at that very first experience that I have literally seen at every international event since then and, and built long-term relationships with, which is kind of cool. We start with a provincial camaraderie, national camaraderie, and it follows right through to the international scene. That's sure does. I was just going to say baseball is the best for that. It, it really is. So you got to meet people at that tournament. Now you say camaraderie, you've got to see them at other tournaments. Let's move on to Japan. Japan was so awesome. They were the most amazing host. We had so much fun in Japan and they're meticulous with their planning and their organization. And, you know, stuff always goes wrong at tournaments. Very little went wrong in Japan, I have to tell you. They were on the ball and they took care of us and we had this lovely place to stay and the food was good and the every, everything was what you dream your international experience is going to be, which never happened again. Okay. <laughs> and that was that was my one ah, right yeah. moment where everything is, is all the things you ever wanted it to be. But uh, one of the highlights of that tournament was that the umpire supervisor of officials was Takeshi Hirabayashi who was one of the Japanese umpires that made it as far as AAA in the MLB. And just an outstanding human, fantastic gentleman, very respectful guy. But I got to tell you, hilarious, hilarious person. Doesn't have great English, but we had so much fun with him. Uh, one of my best memories, uh, my husband, Steve, um, we travel together as much as possible when we have these experiences, just like Bill and Pat. We like to share life experiences together, so we support each other when we go somewhere. Steve was, was with me, and one of the highlight nights was all the umpires to go out and do karaoke. Well, no one goes to Japan yes. without having a bucket list thing is I got to do karaoke. Well, doing karaoke in Japan and doing karaoke with Japanese people is a whole nother thing, I have to tell you. And Takeshi led us off uh, by singing the, uh, the theme song from Top Gun. You know, you've, you've lost that, that loving feeling. feeling by the Righteous Brothers, a classic. Well, Takeshi doesn't sing English or doesn't speak English very well. But he sang that at the top of his lungs for us in that little room. Well, that just kicked off the most fun night of umpire camaraderie and team building ever. And they take their karaoke seriously there. I have to tell you, it was so much fun. Well, in Mr. Takeshi's defense, I'm going to put it out there and not make assumptions, but I am. I don't think your Japanese is very strong either. So it all evens out in the wash, right? Fair point. And back on episode three, we had Aaron Roberts, who went to the Premier 12. He has some fantastic karaoke stories. Well, I should say his girlfriend, Elizabeth, of course, she's a karaoke superstar. So someday you'll have to get together and reminisce about karaoke in Japan. Now you fly back across the Pacific to British Columbia. And next on the list is 2015, the Pan American Games. What was it like to work at games on your home soil? It was a very different feel than being on international soil. 
because you feel much more comfortable in your own country and you kind of feel like a host, even though you're at an international event. If you're Canadian and the events in Canada, you feel host-ish, right? We all um, know each other, right? Right. That's that's just how it is, right? Yeah, I know Jim just down the street. He's only in Toronto. It's about a 20-hour drive away, but we're best as friends on Tuesdays at the Old Cross Canada Coffee Group. So on my side of the tournament, it was myself, uh, Corey Davids, and Elmer Jerkovitz. Andrew Higgins was our supervisor. It doesn't get more fun than that. I have I have to tell you, great, uh, great, great crew of people. And again, lots of fun on and off the field. But again, that was my big experience with a mini Olympics, right? That was Toronto's opportunity to see if they wanted to host the Olympics. That was their trial run. And it did not go off without a hitch. Transportation was a really big challenge uh, at that event. And I think they learned a lot of things about what it would be like to host uh, uh, such an event. You know, we just all... Like we do as umpires, we just roll with everything. And you, if you got to wait four hours to get a ride, you wait four hours to get a ride. That's just the way it is, right? I, I would say uh, we were very well looked after and great fun. Our venue had both baseball and softball at it. So I did actually, you're going to laugh at this, the very first softball game I ever watched in my life was at the Pan American Championships. <laughs> I'm still waiting to have my first one, so don't feel bad. Uber was just a thing back then. It was just starting. So we would rent a car and pile way too many of us in a little Uber and go downtown and find a venue. So we went and watched some handball. We watched some basketball and tried to take in as many of the other events as we could because who knows when we're ever going to get to do that again. So it was a great Canadian umpire team building thing for us to do too. We just had a lot of fun. Now, you mentioned a couple names there. One specifically is Elmer Jerkovitz. Now, he's going to kill me for this, but Elmer's never been one to not want to socialize or host. So, no, I... you don't have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sure Elmer was in his glory. Because he probably knew a lot of people there. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. My, my most hilarious Regina story involves uh, Elmer. Well, since we're talking about Elmer, you got to share that story with us. Steve and I were there working a two-week stint in the, it was the Wimble back then, it's now the Wickbull, and uh, we were in Regina, and I was on the plate, and it was Steve and Corey and uh, a local, we had a four-man system going. It was one of those games that everything could, that could go wrong, it was going to be the game that the wheels fell off, and it was a, it was a test for me, that game, to just keep picking myself up and dusting myself <laughs> off, because it was... Pardon me, it was a shit show. It was one of those, we had a situation where I was trying to call umpire interference. We had the bases loaded. The catcher had whapped me in the in the noggin trying to throw the ball to second. The ball went into center field. Runners are scoring. The runners are already in the dugout and I'm still time, time, time. I'm yelling in the midst of this big nothing. By the time the play stops and I'm calling guys out of the dugout and I'm sending them back and the coaches are yelling at me, it was just brutal. The whole thing, we've all had those moments yep. where you just want the world to swallow you finally the dust settles and things quiet down and i'm about to put the ball in play and some old farmer oh probably farmer ted from the stands and they were packed that night haulers for everyone on the field and the fans to hear he says it's okay honey you're still the best looking umpire we've ever had <laughs> well if you think the world didn't want to open up and swallow me then yeah the next farmer on the other side echoes that with what are you talking about? We've got Elmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Elmer is a local legend in Regina. We talk about local legends on this there, show. There's my Regina story about Elmer. My favorite is when they sing Elmer happy birthday. Anytime they get a chance to sing Elmer happy birthday, they do. 
Elmer probably has 15 to 16 birthdays a year. Happy birthday, Elmer. Okay, that's enough about Elmer. This is about you, Rhonda. Let's move on. Tell us some stories from Mexico. What was it like going back to international soil? Well, that's a Copabi event. And Copabi events are run very differently than WBSC or IBAF. And lots of times what's supposed to happen doesn't happen. And nobody picked me up at the airport. Uh, I didn't have a hotel when I got to Mexico. I didn't know who my supervisor was, and they'd given me no contact information. I was told to, here's your ticket, go to Mexico. Oh, and and Andre was sick, so he wasn't traveling with the team. So Aaron Mayette and and Ashley were kind of spearheading Team Canada. So I'm like, Aaron, nobody picked me up. I don't have a contact. I have no idea what hotel the umpires are staying at. I don't really know what to do. I'm just going to come back to the hotel with you guys. And he's like... Sure, well, we're not going to leave you here. So <laughs> sure enough, I go back to the hotel and I sit in the lobby and I'm trying to text people and find out any information about anything. Nope. No, there isn't any. There's nothing to tell you. Nobody knows anything. Is there information maybe at the at the desk? No, there's not. So I end up staying at the Team Canada hotel for a day and a half. I hear nothing from anybody. And I'm just there with no information, no nothing. And then there's supposed to be a, a Team Canada, Team USA friendly. So I'm going to tag along and then I get told, oh, well, you and the U.S. official are going to be officiating this friendly. So the U.S. official uh, was a, a colleague of mine that I'd worked at other tournaments uh, with before. And so I was happy to see her and we we were uh, going to work together. So we get on this bus and they drive us up this rickety mountain and we get to the place where we were going to play baseball. And there's two Mexican officials there and they're getting paid to work this game. And they're like, yeah, we're working this game. So Drew and I looked at each other and went fill your boots (laughs) (laughs) sit and watch (laughs) don't care so we're sitting there thinking what the heck's going on and so drew's with also team usa who is under mlb protection by the way in this area they've got three undercover agents with them at all times one as a, a covert female player dressed on the team at all times and two cars that follow them uh, everywhere just because of the area that we're in and the okay. circumstance and I'm thinking like oh we're Canadian who'd want to hurt us so we get invited by the mayor of the town where this friendly is to go up to some villa somewhere and have a lunch on him as a thank you for coming and a welcome to their country team USA elects to not go um, and of course, Team Canada were like, hey, free food, we're in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So we all get back on the bus and drive another 45 minutes up this rickety mountain road that you'd never imagine a bus could turn up the S-curves in this. And we get to this ridiculous estate on the top of this place. And we're sitting there eating this food. And a, and a guy walks up to me with a piece of paper with my name on it. And he shows it to me. And, I'm, and he points and, is, and I'm like, yes, I'm Rhonda. And basically he's like, come with me. And I'm I look around and I'm like, I could disappear here for life. So I'm like, Hey, Aaron Ashley, this is the deal. This guy wants me to go with him. Apparently they're, they've tracked me down here. I don't know how, because nobody has any, I have no cell phone right. discussions with anybody. So they're like, Oh, I don't know. It's kind of sketchy. And I'm like, well, it is kind of sketchy. I'm supposed to just get on a bus with this guy by myself and drive away and leave you guys here. And I'm like, I know how to handle myself. I, I can do this. Okay. So I did. So I went back to the hotel, got my stuff, and and uh, and away we went. Well, you're still here to talk about it today, so I have to assume it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> he dropped me off at a hotel. 
that nobody at the desk spoke English and they didn't give me a translator. So nobody there spoke English. I got no translation. So we played charades for a while and I waited until they had a room. That set the tone for what was everything wrong that could go wrong from, oh, the hotel doesn't serve food. We don't take U.S. money. If you don't have Mexican currency right now with everything going on with the wall and the U.S. thing, people are snubbing U.S. money down there. So oh, it was like, okay. no, you must have pesos. Oh, okay. Don't have pesos brought U.S. money because usually we can use that in, in Mexico. No. And the hotel's not cooking you any food. They're just letting you stay here. And uh, nobody speaks English. Do you know when the who's my supervisor? No, don't know that. And then one by one, umpires from other countries just started arriving. And some of the Latin American guys had a little bit of English. And, and Drew from the U.S. is actually bilingual. So we were roommates. Thank God for that. I would not have survived without Drew being able to, at least when we, and of course, Canada and U.S. never, ever works together at an international because the pools are separated, right? Okay, yep. So Canada, if you're a Canadian official, you never work in the pool where Canada is if you're a U.S. Right. official. So I work the U.S. pool and she would work the Canada pool. That's just how it goes. Uh, so we never got to work on the field together. Yep. So I never had a translator ever, which caused a lot of problems because uh, we're supposed to have those as an official so that people know what you're saying and why. So, yeah, there, there was just a, a million things. No food. Uh, there was bugs everywhere in the hotel. They actually fumigated the hotel while we were in it. Guys with the cans on their back and walking through and spraying the hotel and going in the rooms. All, all our stuff everywhere. Spraying for the fleas and the bugs and stuff that were there. There was three coil razor wire around our building. We were told don't go out alone. You know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, we followed the rules and we survived. Uh, I tell you, I lived on beer and potato chips from a corner store that was about three blocks away. Most of that, I actually lost a lot of weight. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you I lost 10 pounds in 12 days that we were there, just literally because you were scared of the bacteria. So you just drank bottled beer because it's pretty much water there anyway. I mean, not on game day. I would never do that before a game, but you, yeah. you literally Enjoyment. potato chips. Potato chips and bottled beer. That was the safe things to eat. And we lived on that for quite a while. Well, if we're being honest with each other here, Rhonda, I usually gain 10 pounds when I do a hot holiday. So I'm jealous that you were able to lose 10 pounds on a trip to Mexico. Doesn't happen that often. So it sounds like you had quite the experience off the field, but I'm told that usually these events really make a person appreciate and focus on their game on the field. How was your game on the field? Oh yeah, I had a good tournament. We had a we had a full-on brawl at that tournament. That was my I mean, I've had I've dealt with brawls that were men and they got nothing on women brawling, I'll tell you that. It was all out chaos. Uh, nothing I'd ever seen. To this day, the craziest fight I ever had to break up. Guys got nothing on girls when it comes to fighting. Okay, you're leaving us hanging here. We're from Canada. We like hockey fights. You got to share with us this good baseball fight story. Uh, so it was Cuba, Puerto Rico. They don't like each other to begin with. Yes. So we start out with, we don't like you, you don't like us. So bring it, right? That's that's the prevailing attitude to begin with. We have the biggest thunder lightning rainstorm ever after four and a half innings that floods the field to shut down. It was forever before we got to play again. Uh, we probably shouldn't have resumed because it had met the criteria, but because this was a game that the matter of, that the runs scored against Cuba mattered in a three-way head-to-head tie going into the crossovers, they were adamant Mexico was hosting and Mexico was on the line for in this three-way tie. So this game was going to go on in hopes that some more runs could be scored. 
Just a quick post-show edit, Rhonda got back to me after the recording of this episode and corrected herself saying that the game was played between Cuba and the Dominican Republic and not Puerto Rico. We're just going to blame a little bit of dehydration and not enough potato chips for the memory fogness during this time. But anyways, the great story. Let's get back to it. Please enjoy. There's a runner on first base. We resume this game. It's blown out all the TV and the networks. They've had to shut everything down because of this big storm. We resume in this mud pit after they've done the best they can to recover the field. They get a uh, runner on first. Cuba's on defense in the field. Uh, Ground ball into second base. And R1 just takes out the second baseman, cleats up, levels her, completely takes her out. And uh, we, I was working only three man that day because somebody was out and I was working with two Mexican officials. He calls the runner safe. End of call. <laughs> We're talking. She took her out. Yeah. The, the, the second baseman gets up and two hands the, the R1, who's now standing on second base, and she falls down. And now in comes center fielder from Cuba, grabs a hold of the second baseman, and just starts feeding her headshots. So he's trying to break up these two. Well, in the meantime, the bench is clear and it is all on like it was like a movie scene, like like nothing I've ever seen before. And we couldn't we couldn't break up a fight fast enough. And the coaches were out there with people under their arms, you know, kicking and screaming. And and I, I was trying to break up a, a women that were fighting with each other that if, if my husband didn't work in enforcement and hadn't taught me that elbow nerve pinching trick to get someone to release their grip, I never would have them separated but I was feeling pretty happy with myself that I was able to separate these because they are these are big ladies I have to tell you these are big strong athletic women I mean I'm I'm five six but you know I'm 145 pounds and we're talking these are these are two women that are out to kill each other yeah. <laughs> you know that was uh, so that was quite an experience and then everything settled down and we resumed the game and there was five people that were supposed to be thrown out of that game but the officials who couldn't understand me decided one person would be thrown out of that game and it was going to be the cuban center fielder (laughs) so that's what happened and we carried on well i guess when you have local officials you play by the local ground rules that is exactly what happened there it's good that we had the canadian in there acting as the linesman and breaking up those fights oh that's what we do everyone think hockey's in our blood but in reality some of those I didn't even have to jersey them either. It was great. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be the next time. I'm just going to start jerseying people. <laughs> well, let's move out of the Cuban Missile Crisis there and get back to Canada. Now, we know that you're involved in the game away from the field as the president, as we've already discussed. But one of the other things that you do is you're involved in the Grand Forks International Tournament. Rob Allen touched on it a couple episodes ago. But can you share with us your experience in that tournament? Oh, sure. It is the most fun, the most sought after assignment in BC, I can tell you, above uh, any other assignment that anybody could get sent to in Canada. If you asked any of our guys, would you rather work the GFI or, you know, go to a cup, people would pick the GFI. It's senior men's international ball with a $55,000 purse. It's the biggest money ball tournament uh, in Canada. The com- competition is great. It's just a lot of fun. And the town of Grand Forks has hosted this tournament forever and it is a community event it's the second largest to canada i want to say canafest but they've changed the name of that big music festival that's there it used to be canafest hundreds of volunteers come together over the course of of a week of of elimination games and then into the money round and it is a lot of fun there's 
streakers every year on the on the <laughs> night games. That's a highlight for everybody. Is you know bets get placed on how many people will get drunk in the beer garden and streak. I mean that's always a highlight of the tournament. But as you can ask Phil Bourgeois how much he likes having his hat stolen by a streaker while he's standing at second base. <laughs> the the best part of that tournament is the umpire camaraderie and the opportunity to work that level together and the crews and the fun that you have and the level of baseball that you get to see. And it's highly competitive and everything means something and they take it really seriously. And when you make a mistake, they eat you alive. That's, that's the price that you pay. So it's high pressure baseball and it doesn't get any better than when you're under high pressure. And it means something when you're an avid umpire, that's, we all live for that, right? That's the, that's the point we're looking for. So I started uh, uh, as an umpire there and, uh, and the tournament chair actually stepped down and a new chair did not come forward. So Steve Boutang, as you know, my husband, who is the provincial supervisor in British Columbia, has been working at that tournament uh, since Howard and Ozzy uh, started him as a very young man. Robbie Allen has worked that tournament uh, forever and ever. So Steve is a staple fixture there and had taken over uh, after Howard Chapman stepped back as the as the umpire coordinator for that and has been instrumental in, in helping that tournament move along. Said, well, I guess I better step up and do this because we can't let this tournament go. We moved into, you know, him being the tournament coordinator and so if I gotta go up there and spend time doing there anyway I might as well be a director on the board and take on some responsibilities and (laughs) and help this go on so uh, the two of us have been working on the board there with the locals and the and the rest of the team up there to try to keep that tournament going and Grand Forks was hit as two years ago by the Kettle River Valley flooding and so we had to cancel the tournament that year it was a big disaster and this is two years later now we've got this pandemic so this is really hard on a little town the size of them in terms of their business and and their revenue being turned away because they're a holiday place, they're a destination. People come there and spend money. So if you've got a flood or you've got a shutdown tournament, people don't come, people don't spend their money. It's hard for businesses to run. So our heart uh, really goes out to the the Grand Forks community and people and how hard they have worked to have such a spectacular event there for all of us to enjoy. People come from everywhere to see that tournament because we don't get to see live baseball to that caliber very often around here. Now, you mentioned there's a $55,000 money purse to it. It's obvious that it has a direct financial impact on the community and that the community is able to come together and actually find a way to put that money up. So, so- that's sponsorship money. And so so the, the, plan, the organizing committee really works hard to get the sponsorship because we know that teams are going to come when there's money on the line, but it costs them a lot of money to, to come there. I mean, right. you, you yeah. mentioned, you know, Tim Lincecum's pitch there, John Olerud's pitch there. That's a, a place where over the years, guys that are up and comers, you know, the, the teams out of the U.S. will fly in a pitcher for a game and fly them out. Like they're spending money to win this tournament and, and to play there. And so it's serious baseball. So you have to have something to draw them. So that's always been a priority is to have a big carrot and and uh, as of two uh, two years ago, they uh, they upped the ante on on that and made it a qualifier for the the senior men's. So that allowed GFI to have a very high profile at at that point. So there's communities here in Canada that, that absolutely love baseball. They live for baseball. Every province has their community or their town that has their event that they're really proud to show off. Sometimes here in Canada, baseball gets brushed aside overall, but there is a fantastic baseball community in the country, and it's towns like Grand Forks that really push that baseball culture and something to be envious of, I'm sure. Now, you mentioned Howard Chapman, longtime umpire there in the BC area, but another name you mentioned was Ozzy, and I assume you're referring to Ozzy Cheveria. 
And yes, there's only one Aussie. There is. <laughs> it's like Cher. It's just Aussie. It's just Aussie. <laughs> Aussie is a umpire known here in baseball Canada. Aussie was a representative for Canada at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Spain. So great mentors to follow up with. So as we talked about, Rhonda, you do a lot of work within administrative and various aspects of the game here in Canada. One of the things, you are a female umpire and you're definitely one of the role models here in Canada. What's it like to be a role model for other females within the country? So this is the question that I'm most nervous about answering because my whole baseball career, I have tried not to be a female umpire and just be an umpire. And if you if you ever talk to the guys that I work with, my crews that that we spend a lot of time together, we work a lot of college ball together, same crews kind of work together. I, I, I feel like we're just team and it's not, you're a male umpire, I'm a female umpire. Nobody says I'm a male umpire. No. So in the US culture, it's completely foreign to see a female on a baseball field. I, I have literally had people stop in their tracks and look around and say, where are the cameras? Are we being pranked? Right. Like no concept of a female official at the college level. In Canada, we, we're used to the concept and the idea. We just haven't got to the place where we have a lot of senior high-level female officials, but not because we're not good enough, because we are still trying, in my opinion, uh, one of my recommendations to the committee way back when was that female development, in my opinion, and again, mm -hmm. I just want to clarify that I'm not an expert at just going on my own experience. I mean, I my life is men. I spend all my time with men. I raised six children, five of which are men. I relate to men. I think most of the time on those grounds and women are more intimidating to me because they're not people that I spend time with that have to learn how to relate to them. I relate to men. That's what I do. So when I think of myself in terms of female role model, I just accidentally happen to be a woman that's an umpire. Fair enough. <laughs> So, so, but I also recognize that visually people are like, Hey, you know, right. Lisa Turbett, Rhonda Pauls, you know, Kelly Hunter, we have three women that have worked high level international ball and, and college and, and all this level. I can understand how it paves the way for women to say, Hey, there's a shot for me to do that. I would say the best thing that you can do is just be the best umpire that you can be and not try to be the best female umpire. Right. <laughs> That, that's my mentality has always been, I'm a mentor, but I don't see myself as a female mentor. I see myself as a mentor, period. I see myself as a senior official, period, not a female official, because there's no gender to me on a baseball field. Because if there is, that means that somebody might treat me differently and I don't want to be treated differently. We all know that we want to go officiate a game and disappear and people don't remember us. That's, that's our best game ever. So when people start saying, hey, it's a woman, I don't want that attention. I don't I don't like the idea that we're promoting that, but I know that it's a big deal right now internationally and in the world that we want women that are capable, just like men that are capable. I don't want men that are there for some other reason, you know, nepotism or whatever it is, right. doing something that they don't deserve to do. I've always felt that I didn't want to do anything that I didn't deserve to do because I'm a woman. I've just worked really, really hard to improve my game and to get as much mentorship as I can so that I can get to the place where I feel like I'm not here because I'm female. I'm here because I earned my way here. Because I think that's the only way we get credibility. And I'll be straight up forward honest. That's a hard, it's a hard question to even ask because when you're on the ball field and you're doing various levels of competition, your partner has earned it just as much as you have to get there. I don't really have much of a follow-up, but I do appreciate that you're able to relate and that we, we do have some fantastic role models from all various shapes and forms and sizes here in Canada because and I'm glad that you really pointed out the American 
transition. And it's, it's nice to hear that we are a little bit more progressive up here. And it's just it's just Rhonda. It, that's who's umpiring today. And that's funny because I've uh, Steve and I have been Robbie Allen, too, for many years. We work at a, at a tournament in, in Tucson for spring training for many, many, many years. And the first few years, the the foreignness of me blew people's minds. And now, literally, the town of Tucson refers to me as Rhonda from Canada because <laughs> because I'm kind of a fixture there now and they're used to me and it's like, hey, you can work. But I had to prove myself there in a different way than a new umpire coming on the scene there would have to prove themselves because as Steve always says, you start with three strikes against you most of the time in those kind of cultures because nobody thinks twice about looking at a six foot two athletic man in nice press gear stepping on a field. Hey, he looks like he knows what he's doing. We're going to believe in him till he shows us that he doesn't know what he's doing. When I step on a field, they're like, what the hell is this now? So you have to prove yourself right from the moment you go out there and, and just do your job like everybody else does and let the evidence speak for itself, right? You know, you mentioned that six foot two athletic man. I Sounds like you're talking about Blaze <laughs> LeVay. <laughs> All right, five foot nine, 220, round man, whatever. If you look good, like you know what you're doing, you get props right from the get-go. Okay, does that sound better? That, oh, that sounds better. Now we're talking about Scott Mills. So it's just going from one extreme to the other, right? <laughs> but obviously you've done a lot right in the country and within the Baseball Canada program. And you were rewarded with that being the 2014 Dick Willis recipient and the, we've talked about this in the show before, but the Dick Willis Award is awarded to the umpire of the year, essentially in the Baseball Canada program. They have to work within the Baseball Canada program. They have to attend so many championships. There's lots of time and effort. So this is not just, oh, you had a good game or a good season. Here's an award. There's more than one year that goes into it, but they only name one a year. So you're a recipient. What do you want to share with us what it was like to be named the 2014 Dick Willis recipient? Well, I'll start out by saying I was completely stunned and completely unaware. Most of the time, you know, when you've when you're a nominee recipient, because you have to go to to the convention and, you know, there's a reason that you're there. Right. Yes. <laughs> so my team, when I say my team, I'm going to call my 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 guys, my cronies decided they were going to get me there without me knowing. And, and where's so, there? Where are we going? So, so we're talking, uh, we're talking PEI, right? Okay. This is where we're going. So normally, uh, again, I go to the conventions usually and, and, uh, fulfilling a, a baseball role or hanging out with the umpires or, you know, whatever. Again, Steve and I travel together for baseball. That's what we do. Uh, this was just going to be one of those trips that looking at the finances probably this year wasn't going to work out for us or whatever. And gosh, I'd sure like to go to PEI and well, that's just too bad. And, uh, I had just come into, uh, working some higher level ball at that point and kind of worked a whole bunch of women's championships prior to entering the men's championship program and uh, Andrew Higgins had just come on as being the national supervisor and one day after our national clinic uh, which happens in March he uh, calls me out for breakfast and says hey I want to talk to you I I would like you to actually make some recommendations to the national committee on developing women at the national level and I'm like well I can tell you my observations and what worked for me and what I saw but I'm I'm not an expert I don't feel like an expert on women's issues or women's anything to be honest with you I don't even know if I'm actually a woman. I just 
got stuck in this body, right? That's <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of how I feel sometimes. But I said, I'll, I'll do my best for you. So we kind of had a framework of the things that he wanted me to address based on different championships and how they were run and different development things. And and I wrote this big report for the committee. Da, 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 months go, go by. And uh, Andrew says to me, you know, this is a great report. And I could reiterate this to the committee, but, you know, you've got passion and I would really like you to actually present your own report. Sure. Can you Skype me in or whatever? And he's like, yeah, no, that we're not at that point yet. You're probably going to have to come to the convention. And I'm like, let me get this straight. You're going to fly me to PEI and put me up at the convention to read a report. And he's like, yeah, this is important. And this is how we've decided we would like you to do this. And so I'm like, well, who I'd argue with that? Yeehaw, I get to come. Exactly, right. So I took this very seriously and I put a lot of work into this presentation and I came and I did all that and I presented to the committee and they asked questions and I was there for the whole weekend and then was the big Saturday night banquet night and all the awards and all the things and we're all dressed up and everybody's having fun and it's like oh the Dick Willis award and I'm like oh shh, shh, pay attention and I get my phone out and I'm like oh who's it going to be this year and I get my camera out and I'm ready to take a picture of the of who wins this award this year right yep. and so my table's really quiet and they're all just kind of in retrospect, they're 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 side eyeballing each other, if you know what I mean yeah. by that. And they're just kind of being mum. And so I'm I've got my camera out and Steve's talking and I'm like, Shh, they're gonna announce the winner and he's giggling. And I'm like, You're being rude. You're being rude. Stop yeah. it. Well he's he can't stop himself. Yeah. So I'm sitting there with my phone and, and I'm waiting. And then they, you know how they do the introduction and they start reading about this individual before they give you the name, you know, yeah. the whole suspense thing. Yeah. And I'm like, gosh. This person's done a lot of the things that I've done. That's what I'm thinking in my brain. Wow. What a, as Pop, I would say, what a coinky day, right? So I'm, I'm listening to this, and then all of a sudden, it dawns on me, oh, my God. And I look at Steve, and I look across the table, at, at and, and they're all, you know, face in hands, and some of them are crying because yep. they can't believe they've pulled this off. Yeah that here I am, they're talking about me. And it's just now that I'm realizing that it's me they're talking about while I'm standing there with my camera in my phone, ready to take a picture of whoever this is. So you wanted to, uh, no time to react. No, I, I just felt completely stunned. And of course, Robbie Alomar was there that year and uh, was part of the presentation. And he was talking to the athletes and the coaches and he came and congratulated me. And I got a picture with Robbie in the award and, and that whole thing. And the whole thing felt very surreal and I felt very humbled by the whole thing. And, and just really, I'm not a crier. I just had to try not to cry. And anybody that knows me will tell you she's not a crier. Not a crier. It was just overwhelming, really. The, the privilege and the honor when there's so many people in our program that have done such amazing things that somehow they landed on me that year was very humbling. Well, you say you were getting ready to take a picture. Was it a selfie at least? or <laughs> No. <laughs> And all the all those times you were down in Arizona thinking you were playing candid camera. I think the boys got yeah. you with the candid camera here, did they? Right. That's right. Well, it's a few years later, but congratulations on that award. And thank you for staying involved within the program. Because sometimes you see people receive these awards and they just kind of fade off. Where do you go from there, right? I'm a worker. I'm one of those drones and the, you know, there's queens of the hive, but then there's the drones that do all of the, all of the work. I'm just uh, a worker and I have a lot of vision for development of umpires and official programs and making what we do better uh, for, especially our young people that have a really hard time uh, in the game. It's, uh, I mean, I mean, education outside of baseball, young people have always been my passion and, and where I like to spend my time and energy, but it's a game of constant learning and you can always get better. I don't care how good you are. You can always 
always get better. And so you're stuck with me for a while longer. Now, after you win the Dick Willis Award, you've done a few international events. What are your goals as an umpire? My goals are always, number one is to have fun. I work with just the best people. I have opportunities to work with some of the very best people in Canada on a fairly regular basis because Steve and I are willing to travel for ball because that's what we do together. That's both of our passion and we're very blessed to be able to do that. But uh, this is my family, right? So my my ambition in baseball is to, to keep doing what we're doing, to keep finding opportunities to be better and, and share what I know. We've done a lot of, we've got an umpire academy in BC. We've got a scouting and recruitment plan now for guys that we bring up into the national program. You know, like I talked about with the BC Summer Games, we do development projects all over the place. And we have just become such a development province that we have so much work to do that my ambition is mostly at this point, I would be thrilled with anything else that I got in terms of an assignment, obviously. But I feel like I have received so much that uh, I just want to give back. Uh, and, I, and I'm not trying to sound, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, by, by saying that I, I really do. My, my heart is with getting other people to the place where I've been so that they can share and enjoy some of those experiences too. And we have a lot of people putting time and effort into guys with talent and potential and young women. Uh, Vicki Ross, I have a young woman that I've been working with since she's 12 years old in my province and she's uh, 20 years old now and she's entered the national program and she's about to cross the line into being a, a level four and I've watched her grow from being a young girl uh, into a lovely young woman with a lot of talent and my greatest ambition would be to see her work a national championship and have confidence and be good at her craft and just be treated like everybody else on the field so those kind of things are my ambition now more so than anything I want for myself. That's fantastic to hear it is nice it's the family aspect it's about bringing those people up and you've alluded to it the parently aspect back with the Phil Bourgeois story but you, you got to a point where you couldn't really you didn't know what to say what word to use. I think you're using the word challenge because I think you're challenging every other province with some of the stuff you guys are doing there in BC to really step up your game because guess what? BC's coming guys and that's what's going to happen. Well, I guess we're going to move into 10 questions, one of the favorite aspects of the show. So if you've heard <laughs> if you've heard it before, if I like your answer, I give you a quick <laughs> and if we're not having fun with it, well, <laughs> quite simple. <laughs> Let's have some fun with it, okay? I don't like being wrong just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Neither does Trevor Drury, but we won't go there. Do we really want to go there right now? <laughs> nice. Yes. Okay. With evolution these days, you have a coffee. Are you preferring an iced coffee or a regular old-fashioned hot coffee? Hot coffee. Oh, no. Trendy. Got to go trendy iced coffee. No, I'm so not trendy. It's all about the Americano, my friend. We're serious. We're back on the field now. Ball goes out of play. We got to put the ball back in. Do you hand the ball to the catcher or do you... Flick it back to the pitcher. Depends on how I feel that day. Little personal flavor, eh? Gotta keep it real. <laughs> you a righty or a lefty? Righty. Do you enjoy golf? Yes, I do. Okay, that's good to know. What is your favorite club in the bag? Driver, hands down. No. What are you talking about? I can play an entire game with the driver. You can putt with it and everything. I can I can leave the tee box and get to the flag with the driver, man. Ask Ron Shuchuk, <laughs> he's seen it. <laughs> Well, if you're hitting driver off the deck on the second <laughs> shot, and you are right, it is the most universal club. I was, I'm a seven iron. I can play that the whole game too. So there you go. We'll have to ask Ron about his driving skills. <laughs> the Saskatchewan wind ball. That's his expertise. 
Now you're a baseball fan, obviously. What's your favorite baseball team? Obviously, I'm a Jays fan because I'm Canadian. That doesn't go without saying. But I'm also a raging Giants fan. So that's my national team. Thing. I got to do that twice. I, that's my, I'm a Jays fan and then I moved out to the West Coast and with the Giants being on the time shift. That is exactly, yeah. So so I'm a, I'm a Jays fan and my husband, Steve, is, believe it or not, I'm sorry to say, a Yankees fan. So we are at each other's throats constantly being in the same division. So the only way that we have any peace in our lives is to both watch Giants games together out of the National League so that at least we can be on the same page once in a while. Being on the West Coast, Giants, and the A's. People, you you learn to like watching Oakland games, my, yeah. my opinion. Now, that wasn't even the question. I was just trying to lead into the question. But the, the real question <laughs> you is, what's your favorite stadium or what stadium do you want to see the most? Yeah, probably San Francisco. That's- Have you been? No. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's cold. When you see them wear jackets and gloves. Yeah. Everybody's got their wind jackets yeah. on up yeah, there, yeah. but I'm ready for it. Kind of excited that you say AT&T Park, or now it's known as Oracle Park. It's a beautiful park. I've been there. I hope you enjoy it. My biggest recommendation is get the garlic fries. Okay, you're invited to a Christmas party. It's a potluck. You're told you get to bring one item. What are you bringing? Well, anybody that's followed me on Twitter over the pandemic will know I'm bringing dang loaf of sourdough bread. (laughs) With some dip, of course, I assume, eh? Oh, no. Just butter. It's that good. You don't need anything else. Been mixing with the sourdough through the COVID? Oh, yeah. I am a pandemic baker, and I make an epic sourdough. You're looking to have a great potluck with the sourdough bread? Invite Rhonda. What's your dream car? Well, this is a funny story. So my very first car when I was a teenager was a 1969 Ford Falcon Sports Coupe with a 302. So my dad, at some point in my early adult life, sold this car without telling me after it had been parked and needed some engine work. And I have never forgiven him, ever. And since that day in my, you know, since I was 21, it's been, you know, 30 plus years, I have been angry with my father about this Falcon because I was going to restore it and it was going to be my car and that's what I was going to drive for the rest of my life. For my 50th birthday, Steve tried to find me a 69 Falcon Sport Coupe, but there wasn't any to be found, but he found me a 61 Falcon. There you go. He's a keeper. So that's now my new favorite is the 61. Oh, you have your dream car. That's pretty awesome. That's uh, that's right. Not only is it my dream car, I have it. So you have a lot of years experience with education. You're the you were the education lead at one time. Let's go back to when you were a pupil or a student. Did you sit at the front or the back of the class? Oh, I was with the bad kids at the back all the time. All those teachers think that we never really listen to them at the front of the class, but we do. Don't worry, we're listening. We take it in. Yes, we do. Do you play a musical instrument? The guitar. How many years have you been playing that? Uh, since I was a kid, I come from a musical family that uh, had campfires and guitars and parties always broke out into sing-alongs. So I took guitar in, in high school and I've played it on and off ever since. That's fantastic. That's one of the biggest things I tell any athlete is learn a musical instrument. It really will Absolutely. advance the mind and memory in various ways that you'll never forget. And when your knees are shot, you can at least sit in the kitchen and land the old six string. <laughs> there right? you go. <laughs> right since we're on music what's your favorite band oh my gosh i can't narrow it down to one i'm a huge huge music fan but i'm gonna have to go with the eagles right now don't know why you were gonna say that but i just had this premonition that you were (laughs) i was really worried though every time i talk to elmer he's always telling me how he can't wait to get to the next share concert so (laughs) 
<laughs> Elmer's known to take in a few concerts. Yes, yes. Uh, Steve and I uh, have made it our mission to uh, go to all the good ones before the rest of them die off because there isn't going to be any worth seeing pretty soon. We lost Petty and I cried the day Petty I died. I cried too. Thank you. I, legitimately. Uh, that was a huge loss. Yeah, I cried for two days. Not going to lie. I'm telling the truth here on the leading edge. Yep. That was the day the music died for me. That's exactly right. I agree. Now, you mentioned you got flipped over, ass over tea kettle at one point there at the National Championship. My guy this week, Jim Wolf, got flipped. Who's your umpire? Who's your favorite at Major Joe West. Cowboy Joe. And Cowboy Joe had quite the run-in, too, with a bat this week. Yes, he did. And he's a trooper. He came back into the game. Who does that? Who gets stitches in their head and comes back into the game? 67 years old and coming back into the game. My hero, right there. You've already shared with us one of, the, one of these awkward stories, but... What's the most awkward thing that's ever happened to you on the ball field? The most awkward thing that's ever happened to me on a baseball field. I'm going to be careful to protect the innocent here and I'll speak in generalities, but I will say that I was in Latin America and I was working the plate between two Latin countries and there was an interpreter on the field. And in the half inning break after the sixth inning, the interpreter came out onto the field with the visiting team's head coach to ask me a question which was very common, you know, based on scenarios and things that were going on. But this was between innings. Uh, they approached me and coach said a bunch of things and the interpreter listened. And then the interpreter said to me, senior, whatever his name was, would like to know if you would have dinner with him tonight. Oh. And I was completely stunned. And I'm like, no, seriously, that's what, what did he say? And he's like, no, he'd like to know if, if you would like to have dinner with him tonight. And of course, now I'm offended. Because right. I'm like, oh. and, I, and I start cussing, yeah. which I don't normally do on a field, but he doesn't understand me. And I'm mad. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. You're going to come out here and disrespect me and ask me to go out for dinner with you in the middle of a baseball game? Like, you've got to be kidding me. And then the interpreter says to me, no, 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 you don't understand. This is a great honor in Cuba for a woman your age. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay. <laughs> And I was like, I got to throw him out of the game if you yep. don't get out of here right now. See you later. And I just turned my back and I walked down the line. But I was like, yeah, that pretty much iced my cake. That's definitely the most awkward thing that's ever happened to me on the field. That is pretty awkward. I didn't think I was going to go there with that question. <laughs> I do consider myself a trophy husband, but I say that tops the cake right there. After 10 questions, we usually like to get into a section that's called local legends. And this is an opportunity for you to really just say thank you and shout out to those that have helped you along the way. You know, I, I feel like I have so many people that have contributed so significantly to my development. I don't even know where to start. My first thank you, uh, and this sounds cheesy, has to go to my husband, Steve, for just working with me incessantly to get me to where I am and for helping me get the opportunities that I needed to, to work with other higher level guys that are going to see me through different eyes and give me different feedback and that sort of thing. And uh, Robbie Allen would be one of those individuals that has taught me a lot about baseball uh, over the years and really advocated for me when uh, Steve, when the husband in Steve got ahead of the supervisor in Steve and he wanted to protect me from shit going down on the field and not put me in those situations, which didn't really help me learn how to, to develop my game management. And Robbie really stood up for me and said, no, you know what? You put other people in hot water because that's how you learn. You got to let her sink or swim. Right. So that he really advocated for me in, in a time when maybe my husband didn't have the best judgment because he was also managing my portfolio and our marriage. Yeah, <laughs> <This> exactly. 
so so that having been said, uh, the next local legend that I would have to give props to would be Bill McMillan, who is one of our longest standing board members on the BCBUA. But his wisdom, I mean, this this is a funny, funny man who can take any situation, not no matter how bad or awkward, and ease bad stuff out of it just because he's got that way of doing that. And when you see him on the field or when he's talking to people or when you see him speak up in a situation where people are in conflict or they're arguing, Bill just has this way of diffusing things. And I've just I've been able to talk to him as a mentor and learn so many things just from observing how he handles life that has been applicable to me. Uh, in my life. So that that has been huge uh, for me in my life. And the other person who is not local to me here that I feel like I've learned the most significant thing from is Andrew Higgins. And the reason that I say Andrew is because the very first time I ever worked a doubleheader with Andrew was in Tucson uh, many years ago in the college uh, spring season. And I was so excited to work with Andrew because he's legendary. He's awesome. He's amazing. And he's so has so much wisdom about baseball. It's like Corey Davis, right? They're, they're legends to all of us. But I walked off the field and we're walking back to the change room down this long road between the field and where our clubhouse was. And the first thing that Andrew says to me is, so Rhonda, what do you got for me? And I looked at him and I said, and I'm looking in my pockets like I'm holding something for him that I'm supposed to give back. <laughs> yeah. and he, what do you mean, Andrew? And he's like, well, what did you see out there? It's, you know, this is our first couple of games back. It's the spring. We haven't umpired for a while. What did you see out there? Uh, what do you got for me? He was asking me for my feedback on his on-field performance. And I said, hold the phone. You, Mr. National Supervisor, are asking me, nobody, for feedback on your game. And he's like, well, what, are you blind? Do you not see things? Can you not tell me what you saw? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can. And he's like, speak up. I want to hear what you've got. So I said, well, and we started talking and he and we had a dialogue about things. And and then so he said, I, I don't think that we should any of us be above having our colleagues look at us and give us feedback. And we don't always have to agree with them, but it's a practice to self-reflect all the time and never get into a headspace that says, hey, I'm the top of the pile. Nobody's got anything to say to me. And that lesson has permeated our entire organization uh, by the, the modeling that we have done here with that created this culture of come off the field. I don't care who you are. Let's sit down and talk about our game and give each other feedback. I don't care how good you are. You could probably always be better. And just because you're not on the rung that I'm on doesn't mean you can't see when I screw up on the field and give me feedback or notice something that somebody else hasn't seen, that kind of thing. So that was a really tremendous lesson that I learned from Andrew. Very wise, very humble man. I have to give out props to him for that. I had the opportunity to meet Andrew first time back, I think in 2010-ish, 2009-2010. And he still lives with me this day. He doesn't know it, but I seen him wearing Honig shin pads and I had to go buy a pair the next day. I was just, <laughs> Higgy's go. wearing them. I have to wear them. That was my argument. That was the only thing I could get in common with that guy at the time. So Rhonda Paul's local legend, Steve Butang, Bill McMillan, and Andrew Higgins. Well, Rhonda, this essentially wraps up episode 11 of The Leading Age. I'd like to thank you for coming on and being a guest and sharing with us your stories. Now, before we go, we always like to allow the guests the opportunity to have a couple minutes just to say anything that they want to lead with or share some words of wisdom. I don't think I have any words of wisdom, but I will say this. The Baseball Canada program is a tremendous opportunity for all of our umpires. The collegiality that we have in province with our national umpires, but across the country and the friendships that we've all built means so much more to me than just those are baseball people. These are family. These people become our family and we can go five years without seeing them. And then it's like we never skipped a beat. 
because we all have the same uh, common thread and I'm so thankful to be part of the program. I'm so thankful to have the opportunities and I would encourage the rest of the provinces to just get on board with mentoring our next generation up and keep fighting the good fight and we'll get there someday. We're going to win. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on our next episode, where we bring on 1990 International Umpire of the Year and Canada's representative at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, Jim Cressman. Now, before you go, we would like to leave you with this. The official rules of baseball define the batter's boxes as six feet long by four feet wide. But nowhere does it define how many feet are in it once the batter steps in. Take care, everybody, and stay safe.